Good morning, church. Uh, today's scripture reading is from Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. Genesis 3, verses 1 to 24. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing, in pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. This is God's word. Thanks, Annie, for reading scripture for us. Friends, it's a joy to be with you all again and to gather physically with you all. Uh, it's so good to be back here and preach to faces and uh, put, yeah, have people in the pews as opposed to just preaching to a camera. So thank you for coming this morning. And for those at home, I hope you're able to join us again at some point. Thank you for watching our services and may God bless our time together. Uh, what a joy it is to... Uh, put Tian Chai forward as an associate pastor. I've worked with this brother for a few years now and I've been so encouraged by his faithfulness, his love for the Lord, his love for the Lord's people as well. So it is with great joy that uh, the elders are putting him forward to serve full-time as an associate pastor. So may God uh, help us to welcome him and to 
uh, give thanks to God for how He's providing laborers for His harvest. You know, we pray, you know, we know that the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. So thank God every time He raises laborers who are willing to accept His call and to go full time to serve Him. Uh, some of you may be wondering why we have two congregational meetings. Well, the one today is, is the one you should all attend. Uh, it's where we welcome new members in, we get to hear from them, we pray for them. Uh, you get to hear more from Tian Chai and Lap Ming as well. They're going to share uh, a bit more about how you know, God's calling them to serve and you can ask questions too. So do come for the QCM, the, the quarterly congregational meeting today. It's at 2pm over Zoom. And the other congregation meeting on the 25th, that's actually just uh, a time where we, we, we elect Tian Chai and Lap Ming. So that's not really a full meeting but it's a time when the results of the elections are announced and, and it's, it's a briefer meeting. So do come for the meeting today and if you have more questions, uh, make yourself available for the town hall on the 18th of July. Uh, any, the elections will be done via proxy, so I trust that members, you've received uh, a copy of the pro proxy form in your emails. Uh, so remember to fill up those proxy forms. Uh, voting will be done through those forms, so not at the meeting itself, but through those forms. So get those forms back to the office uh, 48 hours before the meeting on the 25th of July. Right? So members uh, do uh, affirm both Lap Ming and Dian Chai and make your, you know, use your, your, your voice, steward your voice well as the Lord leads us. Right, let's uh, pray together as we come to His Word. Let's all join our hearts in prayer. Gracious Father, we give you thanks and praise. You are the God who made the heavens and the earth. And Father, as we come to you, we humble ourselves, we acknowledge that we are but creatures whom you have made. Oh, Father, we pray that you would open our hearts to you and your word. We pray that you would send forth your spirit and may your spirit open our eyes, open our ears, give us hearts that are soft to hear from you. And Father, we pray that you would strengthen us so that we might be those who not just hear your word, but those who do your word, so that we might glorify your name. Father, we pray that you would bless this time together around your word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, how was your week this past week? I think many of us can say that, well, you know, it was a good week, but if we're honest, we would say that we also struggled with many things this week. It might be struggling with conflicts in our relationships. Maybe you had an argument with your spouse. It might be conflict with your children. It might be conflict with your parents. It might be a stressful week you've had at work. Maybe conflict with your colleagues, disagreements with your boss. Or maybe you are that boss who's had disagreements with your subordinates. Maybe you've experienced the frustration at work. You know, things not going the way you planned. Uh, Last-minute changes, things, plans falling through. You know, maybe that was your week at work. Uh, maybe some of us have wrestled with illness or some chronic condition this past week, some aches and pains. I know I had, I had an ache in my back this week, a reminder that I'm not young anymore. <laughs> right, maybe some of us experienced that this past week, right? those kinds of physical ailments or even a mental ailment. Right? We struggled with maybe a mental health issue this past week. Maybe some of us have done something against someone this week or, or maybe have had something done against us this week. Right? Now, the week that I, you know, what I've just described, it's, it's not unusual. I, I think for many of us, this could describe our typical week. Sometimes something's good, but a lot of things also not quite good. This is a very ordinary week for many of us. You know, living through a pandemic, for the past 18 months, it's obvious that all is not right with the world. And I think the, the way I've described our week, I think also reminds us that something's not quite right. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. Every day, every day, we experience life in a broken world, in our relationships, in our marriages, in our parenting in our families, at work, even at church. Every day we experience life in a broken world. This is, seems very normal to us, doesn't it? And yet, you know, we've just gone through Genesis 1 and 2, 
where creation is described as what? Very good. And God made all things very good and He rested on the seventh day, enjoying the labours of His work. Creation was pure delight. You know, in, in the Hebrew, they use the word shalom. Right? It, it's a very rich word. Shalom doesn't just mean peace, but, but it's a sense of flourishing, of wholeness, of delight, pure, uncorrupted joy, of eternal life. Right? That, that, that's the, the, the richness of the word shalom. And at the beginning, when God made all things very good, there was shalom, perfect peace and rest. So then we need to ask the question, how then do we get here? Why is a difficult week normal for us? What happened that we've come from shalom to what we are now, struggling in the midst of a pandemic? What has gone wrong? Now, these are fundamental questions that deal with very real-life issues. And we'll be looking at Genesis 3 to help us to understand how we ended up here, what went wrong. But even as we hear about what went wrong, we're also hearing about how will things be put right. You know, this is one of the most dismal passages in the whole Bible. Right? This doesn't make for very pleasant reading. We read about how trouble in paradise leads to paradise lost. Yet, even as we go through this chapter, we do see glimmers of hope. We see that the light of God's grace still shines in the darkness. And even in the darkness, the promise of a serpent-crushing seed gives us hope. And that's what we think about today. So let's begin with trouble in paradise, verses 1 to 6 of our text. Genesis 3 begins on an ominous note. Suddenly appears the serpent, a creature who's described as being more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Now, how did evil enter God's creation? Interestingly, we're not told how the serpent came to be evil. Genesis 3 does not give us an exhaustive account of the origins of evil. I think we have to trust God that God in His wisdom has not seen fit to reveal this mystery to us. He simply told us that at the beginning, the serpent appeared. And then we'll we'll go on to see what the serpent does. But it's a reminder that there are things that God has has seen fit not to reveal to us. So how do we respond to this? I, I think Deuteronomy 29 puts it well. It says, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. So the secret things belong to Him. We trust Him with them. But the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Why? So that we may do all the words of this law. So as as we come to this very difficult issue about the origins of evil, we need to acknowledge that we are not God. We don't have all the answers. We can trust God and trust what he's revealed, and not speculate about what he has not revealed. We leave that to him. Our part is to trust and obey what he has told us in his word. And that's what we want to focus on today. So this, this talk won't be a long speculation about the origins of evil, but we'll simply see what God has said in his word. So what or who, what or who is the serpent? We learn that this serpent is no ordinary animal. In fact, the rest of the Bible sheds more light on who this serpent is. In Revelation 12, verse 9, it says, That ancient serpent. And then John tells us who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. So the rest of the Bible helps us to understand what's going on in Genesis 3, that this serpent is not just a a creature, a talking snake, But this serpent is at least an instrument used by the devil to tempt man and woman. And the devil seeks to destroy humanity, deceives, he accuses, and his goal is to wreck us, to destroy us. Why? I think perhaps because we bear God's image and because because Satan hates God, so obviously he will hate those who are made in his image. So he appears to Eve. We don't know how or why the devil fell, but 
we know that he is not God's equal. So Genesis 3 does not set up a dualistic universe where you have good and evil equally fighting, out, fighting it out for victory. No, Satan is not God's equal. We're told here that he is a creature made by God. He exists because he was made by God and therefore he comes under God's sovereign rule as well. You know, if, you want to hear, if you want to know more about this, you read the opening chapters of Job. Right? It's, a, it's a very good explanation about how Satan has to ask God for permission to do things. Why? Because he comes under God's sovereignty. But here the Satan appears and he says to the woman, did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Right, let's think a bit more about his question. His question is insidious. It's a very subtle question. His question is cunningly calculated to cast doubt on God's word and God's goodness. So if, if, you, if you recall in Genesis 2, the Lord God said to the man there, you may surely eat, right, emphatic, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So that, that's God's original word to the man and the woman. But you notice how the, the serpent is very crafty? What does he do? He overstates the prohibition. Now God said you shall not eat of any tree. Right? He's saying, hey, God, God actually doesn't want you to eat of anything. He's put you here, he's put all these trees before you, but he's told you you can't eat. You see how he's very crafty? You know, what, what, is, what is he doing? He's insinuating that God is harsh and stingy. You know, see how the serpent also uses the name God rather than Lord God. You know, we've considered in the first two chapters of Genesis how that, that name, Lord God, you know, it appears in chapter 2 for the first time in the Bible. So that name, Lord God, is a reminder that this God is Elohim. Right? He's the creator, all-powerful God of the universe, the one who made the heavens and the earth. But he's also Yahweh, right? Lord He's the God who is personal. He's the God who delights in entering into a relationship with His image bearers, with men and women. He's the God who draws near. He's not just high and lifted up, aloof, distant somewhere, but He's the God who walks with His people, as verse 8 tells us. But the serpent wants to portray God as distant, as impersonal, as uncaring. So he uses that name, God, you know, just almighty, but we can't really relate to him. And he doesn't relate to us. And he wants to portray God as unnecessarily restricting. A God who makes us but keeps us from good things. My friends, I wonder if we realize this is how temptation often begins. You know, every time we sin... It's, it's actually the product, it's the fruit of bad theology. You know, sin is the fruit of bad theology. Now, you might, you might be wondering, hey, but you know, we're not, you know, not, not, not all of us have gone to seminary, not all of us are, uh, are trained, you know, quote-unquote trained in that way. You know, we, we don't even read a lot of Christian books, maybe we just read our Bibles. We don't really think about theology all that much, do we? Well, I would say that we do. Right? Because theology is simply what we believe about God. That, that is theology, what we believe about God. And all of us, in fact, whether we are Christian or not, all of us have a theology. All of us have certain beliefs about God. And sin, or temptation and sin, often be begins with wrong beliefs about God. And Satan knows that. And that's why he comes to Eve, and his first tactic is to begin to sow wrong beliefs about God in her heart. That's how the temptation begins. So think, think about the times when you sin. You ask, ask yourself, in, in that very moment, when you do that thing or when you say that thing, when you think that thing, what are you thinking about God? What are you thinking about God? You know, when, when I lose my temper uh, you know, with my kids, when I, when I yell at them, in that moment... What, what do I believe about God? That He's gracious? That He's patient? That He's forgiving? 
No, I don't think so. You know, in the moment when I'm tempted to lie, what am I thinking about God? That He's truthful? That He's the God who keeps His word? I don't think so. In that time when I'm tempted to not forgive, when I harden my heart against someone, what do I really believe about God in that moment? That He's gracious? That He's forgiving? There's the God of steadfast love? I don't think so. Friends, every time we sin, it's actually a manifestation of bad theology. Every time we sin, it says a lot about what we really believe about God. So think about this. So we have a professed theology, right? We, we, we say we believe these things about God, but then we do these things, which tells us that the theology that we functionally believe can be quite different from the theology that we say we believe. So how? So the Christian life is actually about bringing our functional theology more in line with what we say we believe. That means we need to allow the truths of God to really penetrate our hearts, to really internalize within us so that we begin to live out what the Word actually says about God. That's actually what sanctification looks like. But back to our text, the the serpent tempts Eve to sin by tempting her to disbelieve and doubt God's character. So that's how temptation often comes to us as well. You know, when we question if God is really for us, we see His word as burdensome, as restrictive, and we may even begin to rationalize and justify our sin, insisting that we're entitled to do what we want since we can't trust God to provide for us. And the woman is beginning to be swayed by the devil's lies. Notice what she leaves out and what she adds in her reply to the serpent in verses 2 and 3. So she says, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So notice a couple of things in the woman's reply. First, she downplays God's generosity. She doesn't mention how God surely gave them every tree for food. She downplays God's righteousness by softening the penalty for disobedience. Lest you die. Sounds sounds a bit nicer than you shall surely die. And notice how the woman makes God appear restrictive by adding to God's word. You notice what she adds? What 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 does she add? God never said anything about not touching the tree. So, so that, that's an interesting thing to think about when it comes to obeying God. Obeying God means neither doing less than what His Word says. It also means not doing more than what His Word says. Right? That, that's obedience because you follow His Word as it is. You don't take away, you don't add. To it, but, but here, the woman adds to his word, perhaps feeling like, yeah, actually, you're right. Maybe God is quite restrictive. I can't even touch the tree. But God never said that. The serpent entices the woman to doubt his goodness. And seeing the woman waver, the, the serpent openly denies God's truth. Right? He, he says to the woman, flat denial of God's truth, you will not surely die. Don't believe God. You won't die. The serpent then proceeds to slander God's character, his integrity and his motivations. He maligns God. He says, don't obey God because he can't be trusted. Verse 5, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the serpent saying about God? He's saying, hey, God just wants to hold you back. God doesn't want you to realize your true potential. God doesn't want you to really live life to the fullest. God doesn't want you to be really happy, to have joy. I mean, those those things sound very familiar to us, right? Because oftentimes when we are tempted, we believe those things. We believe those things about God. He He says to the woman, God just wants to hold you back from becoming who you are and all that you can be. The serpent entices the woman to find her identity, her purpose and her meaning without God. And he conveniently leaves out the truth that man and woman are already like God 
Why? Because they have been made in His image. And God has already given them identity, purpose, and meaning. But He tempts them to deny all these things. So friends, when we sin, when we are tempted, we fall into sin, it's not just a matter of doing something wrong. It's not just a matter of breaking some impersonal rule or some arbitrary law of the universe. No, friends. When we sin, it's intensely personal. Sin is personal rebellion against a loving God. Sin is an expression of disbelief. Like, God, I don't think you are who you say you are. I can't trust you. And because I can't trust you, I'm going to take matters into my own hands and do what I think is best for me. That's sin. It's personal rebellion against a loving God. So instead of trusting Him and His Word, we want independence and autonomy from Him. And sin seeks to depose God from His throne because we think that we should be in control of our lives. We think that we know best. We should get what we want. And that's exactly what the woman does in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. The woman was tempted by the desires of the flesh and the eyes and by the pride of life. The fruit made her feel good. The fruit looked good. And the fruit made her feel good about herself. You know, once her heart is drawn away, you, know, you, you see that the actions very quickly follow. You know, they're all compressed in verse 6. Right? The, the, the kind of heart working is, is found in verses 1 to 5, but the actions just all happen very quickly in verse 6. Once her heart is enticed, she saw, she took, she ate, she gave to her husband and he ate. Right? You see this whole sequence of actions that flow out very quickly once our hearts are drawn away from God, which tells us that sin is more than just a matter of action. Sin is fundamentally a heart condition. Our actions, our words, are merely symptoms of a deeper problem in the core of our being, in in our hearts. So in order to deal with sin, it's not enough to just change behaviour. To, to really deal with sin, we need new hearts. We, we need the core of our being to be changed, to be washed clean. But of course, that begs the question, how? The Bible says we can't change our own hearts. Then how? So these verses reveal the nature of temptation and sin. What should we do when we're tempted? As we realize that the war begins in our hearts, we need to internalize and hold fast to the truths of God, like I said earlier, to take what we believe, what we say we believe, and actually live it out. So that it becomes not just what we say, but what we practice. We do the truth about God. So internalize the truths about God. Know that He's good. The next time we're tempted, just say to yourself, God is good. He's so generous. How can I do this against Him? He is holy and He loves us and He desires what is best for us. Next time you're tempted to doubt His goodness and to find your own way, friends, say to ourselves, He wants to give us joy and He wants to give us life. don't, Don't believe the devil's lies. And where is the man in all this? Verse 6 tells us he was with her But that begs the question, why didn't he say or do anything? Why didn't the man fulfill his God-given duty to keep the garden, which means to guard the sanctity of God's place? You know, I think in this passage, the man is conspicuous by his silence. Both he and the woman disobey God by eating the forbidden fruit And therefore, trouble in paradise results in paradise lost, which is our second point. So the eyes of the the men and women are opened 
But it's a disappointing anti-climax. Sin always over-promises and under-delivers. Sin never keeps its word, unlike God. The men and women wanted autonomy from God to be free to know and decide good and evil for themselves. But all they realize, all they come to know, is their own sin and guilt. They try to hide from God and each other as a result. You know, previously, they were naked and not ashamed, but that innocence is now shattered. Sin breaks relationships. Sin undermines community. It destroys unity. It results in mistrust and alienation. You know, some of you may have heard of this thing called the imposter syndrome. I recently read about the imposter syndrome. It's people who feel anxious about being found out, or being exposed as a fraud. So, so they talk about people who do certain jobs and they feel like they're not qualified for the job, but they're there and they're doing it. And then therefore, they, they live with this tension, this anxiety of being an imposter. You know, what if someone finds out that I'm, you know, that I'm not really skilled for this work? What if someone finds out that I'm really a fraud, that I really don't know all this stuff? So many people live with a lot of anxiety because of this thing called the imposter syndrome. Well, here we see the first occurrence of that imposter syndrome, right? pretending to be something we're not and being very anxious about being exposed. For the man and the woman, they try in vain to cover themselves with fig leaves. They, they, they're worried about being exposed, having their nakedness exposed to a holy God. Friends, how might we be pretending to be okay because we are afraid of others finding out who we really are and what we're struggling with? Now, do we put on fig leaves? Right? What might those fig leaves be to hide our nakedness and shame from others? What hidden burdens do we bear in our hearts? You know, how might we be trying to hide our guilt and shame behind an appearance of morality and appearance of religion? I think right here in Genesis, you have the first example of self-salvation, of the man and woman trying to make themselves okay, right? How? By covering themselves with fig leaves. But friends, our, these efforts at self-salvation can never truly remove our guilt and shame. In fact, the more we try to hide from God and from one another, the more guilty, I think, we feel. It's a dead end. So one thing to be like God, the man and woman lose the joy of being with God. I mean, that's the tragic irony of Genesis 3. And they hide from Him. So friends, when we insist on forsaking God, we end up losing ourselves. We end up losing what makes us truly human. What makes us truly human is knowing God. It's knowing our creators, knowing the one in whose image we bear. That's what makes us truly human. Sin dehumanizes us. Sin robs us of our true personhood. But God graciously pursues the man and woman. He continues to walk in the garden again and again. He seeks them out. He is still the Lord God. Notice how that name is used again in verse 8. He is still the personal, faithful, covenant-keeping God. So men and women may have broken the covenant, but He will take the initiative to restore it. He takes the initiative to seek the lost, and He, he calls to the man, where are you? It is not because God doesn't know, but rather this call to the man is an invitation to the, to the man to come forward, to come to God. It's a gracious invitation. You know, God made man and woman in His image to rule over creation. And at the fall, the creation order was turned upside down. You notice this in Genesis 3. Because how does the temptation happen? It's the serpent speaking to the woman, the woman listening to the serpent, the man doing what the serpent and the woman says, and God is not even in the picture. So sin kind of turns 
God's created order upside down. But now, when God appears, He reasserts His order by speaking. And then He speaks first to the man, and then to the woman, and then to the serpent. So He's establishing, again, the rightful order of creation. And in doing so, God shows mercy. In, instead of simply denouncing the man and woman, He seeks to draw out their confession and repentance. And that's how God often deals with us in our sin. He doesn't just throw the book at us, but He convicts us by His Spirit and He draws us out. He draws us to Himself and He draws us to pray, to confess and to pour out our hearts to Him and say, yes, God, you're right. I've turned away from you. And that's what God is doing for the man and woman here. That's why He asked them the question in verse 11. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree? of which I commanded you not to eat. Like a loving parent, questioning a disobedient child, God is seeking to lead the man and woman to trust and obey. The man, however, he shifts blame. Verse 12 says, The woman, (laughs) the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. What, what a sad turn of events in their marriage. Right? You remember Genesis 2? The first words of the man were a, a love song, right? a poem, joyfully sang of his one flesh union with the woman. She is bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. She belongs to me, I belong to her. And now he throws her under the bus. In fact, if you, th- if you think about his reply, who is he really blaming? You, God, gave me this wife. Sin leads to the breakdown of both that vertical relationship with God as well as the horizontal relationship between man and woman. There's there's lots of blame shifting going on in these verses. The woman likewise blames the serpent for deceiving her. It's sad. None of them take responsibility for their disobedience. And because God is holy and righteous, He must judge sin. And in verses 14 to 19, God pronounces judgment on the serpent, the woman, and the man. So the serpent is cursed to eat dust. And that's simply an expression of defeat, right? You eat dust because you've been defeated, humiliated. So the serpent will ultimately be defeated. He will eat dust. The serpent may have succeeded in tempting the man and woman, but he will not finally win. God will triumph over evil. How? Listen on for the third point. And the woman is not cursed, but the fall will affect her roles in marriage and motherhood. Humanity's mission was to be fruitful and multiply, have children, Genesis 1. But that mission will now be marred by pain and barrenness. Parenting will not be easy. Raising children will be challenging. So parents, if you're wondering why your past week was so difficult, this is it. Marriage also becomes difficult. The woman was meant to be man's helper and together they are wed for worship to serve God together. But now, selfishness and strife undermine the one flesh union. Now God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary. I think that the word there is better translated contrary to your husband. Right? In the same way, Cain is told, sin's desire will be contrary to you in Genesis 4 verse 7, here God says to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. The battle of the sexes has begun. Both, each spouse will vie for control. This is the reason why you have domineering wives and passive-aggressive husbands who abdicate godly, loving, sacrificial Headship. This is where it begins, this battle of the sexes. So ultimately, when we think about marriage, why, why, why do marriages suffer? Why do marriages struggle? Yes, you know, there may be personality differences involved, there may be circumstances involved, but friends, the, the, the root of our marital struggles is right here in Genesis 3. It, it's sin. And, and, and don't, be, don't be too quick to just point your finger at your spouse saying, yeah, my spouse's sin. No, friends, it's, it, it's our own sin 
that resides in our hearts, that's at the root of our marital struggles. You know, this is one of the things I, I, I talk to couples about when, when I do marriage prep for them, you know, when, before they get married. One of the things I, I encourage them to remember is that their biggest adversary, that their biggest rival is not each other. You know, sometimes when couples get into a fight, when there's conflict, it's easy to think that my adversary is my spouse, right? We're both fighting about something. But friends, your spouse, my spouse, they are not the adversary. We have a common enemy, and that enemy is our sinfulness, the sin that resides in our own hearts. So I often tell couples when I do marriage prep for them, I say, you need to remember that you are on the same team fighting the same enemy, your sinfulness. And, and your role in your marriage is to help each other, even in the midst of conflict, even when you feel that you don't see eye to eye, even in those moments, maybe especially in those moments, your responsibility is to help each other to turn away from sin and to follow Jesus. So friends, in that way, conflict can be very sanctifying because it exposes our hearts, our own hearts, and it help us, helps us to move towards a Redeemer. And, and that's the beauty of a husband and wife helping each other to follow Jesus. Right? That, that's the beauty of marriage as God intended. The ground is cursed because of man's disobedience. Work was a part of God's good creation. It was supposed to be productive, satisfying, and joyful. But because of the fall, work is now difficult, discouraging, and frustrating. This explains why we hate Mondays, why our jobs are often a source of suffering, stress, and sorrow, why we're never satisfied at work. You know, our daily work struggles are a constant reminder of the fall. Right? This tells us to have modest expectations of work. Yes, work hard, work smart, but don't idolize work. I think this is a reminder that work cannot ultimately give us the satisfaction, the identity, and the meaning we so desire. It's not, it can't bear the weight of our expectations, especially in light of the fall. We will never be perfectly satisfied at work. And we will wrestle with work being futile. Our lifetime of labor will eventually end in dust, literally, when we die. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And the, woman and the man and woman are exiled from the garden. And sin separates us from God, who is perfectly holy. The Lord God drove out the man, and at the east of the garden, of Eden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. So cut off from God, who is the source of life, the man and woman will surely die. So you might wonder, why are we spending so much time on this historical account of a man and woman who lived so many years ago? This is prehistory, right? Why, 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 do we, why are we reading so much about the man and woman? And why should these things affect us today? What's the connection? Well, we need to realize that the man, he's not just sinning as a, as a private individual, as an individual person, but he's, he's sinning as a representative. The man represents humanity. There is a representative uh, idea that's going on here in, in, these, in these verses. In the same way, we are saved by a representative as well, same representative function going on in Adam and then later in the second Adam. So Adam represents us and therefore his sin affects us all, which is what Scripture goes on to say in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 5, by the one man's disobedience, we were made sinners. In Adam, we have all sinned. He represents us. Because our representative sinned, we have sinned in Him. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We have inherited a sinful nature from Adam that twists our hearts away from God. 
And therefore, we enter the world not innocent, but we enter the world sinful. That's the plight of humanity. That's why Paul can say categorically in Romans 3, there is none righteous. No, not even one. Sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. And in Adam, we face judgment and death. Friends, this is the doctrine of original sin. Blaise Pascal said these words about this doctrine of original sin. He says, Certainly nothing jolts us more rudely than this doctrine. And yet, but for this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we remain incomprehensible to ourselves. So in other words, if we really, if we really want to understand ourselves, if we really want to know ourselves, we need to know God and we need to know who we are in relation to Him and we need to know how we have turned away from Him. That's what it means to really know ourselves. The story is told that the Times of London early in the 1900s posed this question to several prominent authors. What's wrong with the world today? The well-known author G.K. Chesterton is said to have responded with this short essay to the Times, and he wrote this in his response. Dear Sir, I am, full stop, yours, G.K. Chesterton. I think G.K. Chesterton shows a good amount of self-awareness. Why? Because we're all fallen sinners, all of us, in need of a saviour. God made us to reflect His image, but sin has shattered the mirror and we now live in the middle of all this broken glass. God's good creation has been corrupted by suffering and sorrow, decay and death, and even His good gifts of marriage and work, childbearing, they're now tainted with pain. And every day, every day, we experience life in a fallen world. But pain can be a difficult grace that points us to God. As C.S. Lewis said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, shouts in our pain. It is His megaphone to rouse a deaf world. So the pain that we experience in our lives, the, the, the pain that we experience day to day as we live life in a fallen world, is meant to wake us up. It's meant to tell us that Things are not the way they're supposed to be. I shouldn't be satisfied with life in a fallen world. There must be something better that I should be yearning for. There must be a hope. And indeed, God gives us hope even in this very chapter. There's hope for paradise. God's goodness still shines amid the darkness of sin. Where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. God saves by judging the serpent. He will defeat Satan sin and death, and it will do so through a promised seed, an offspring. It says in verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He, notice the singular, shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And this has been rightly called the proto-gospel, the first mention of the good news in the Bible. Friends, this is good news. tells us that the fall isn't the end of the story. It would be so dismal if the Bible ended in Genesis 3. But God will save sinners and restore His creation to its rightful glory. And He will do this through a serpent-crushing seed who will destroy the devil and destroy death even. And the rest of Genesis, indeed the rest of the Bible, is really the, the story of this seed. This promised seed is one story of how God will bring this seed to his people. And the good news is that the man believes God's promises. And that's why he names his wife Eve, which sounds like life giver in Hebrew. The man shows us that salvation is by trusting in the promises of God, specifically the promises of a saviour whom God will provide from Eve, the mother of all living. The Lord God graciously makes for Adam and his wife garments of skins and covered them. Animals are killed 
so that man and woman's nakedness can be covered. And God removes our guilt and shame through the death of a sacrificial offering. And this story of the seed, it goes through Adam, Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, and David in the Old Testament. And it comes to culmination, it culminates with the coming of Jesus, the son of Abraham and the son of David, the seed of Abraham, the offspring of David. Jesus is the promised seed of the woman. So Paul says in Galatians 4, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman. Jesus is the new and better Adam. The first Adam disobeyed, although he enjoyed the bounty of paradise. Jesus, the second Adam, was tempted in the wilderness, and yet he resisted the devil. Unlike Adam, Jesus obeyed God even to the point of death on the cross. The first Adam wanted to be like God. The second Adam, who was fully God, did not count equality with God a thing to be selfishly held on to, but he humbled himself and made himself nothing in order to lay down his life for undeserving humanity. This second Adam was bruised for our sins. He took the judgment that we deserve and in doing so, he took away our guilt and shame if we trust in him. And through his death and resurrection, this second Adam defeats Satan, sin and death. As Paul says, the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift of, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Friends, we are what's wrong with the world. But Jesus, the second Adam, has come to make things right. And he will come again to bring the new creation in its full glory. That's our hope. So will we humble ourselves before him and repent of our rebellion against God? Will we gratefully receive God's grace from his promised son? Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you so much for your kindness to us. Father, we thank you that you remain gracious even though we have turned away from you. And Father, as we come to you, we pray that you would give us new hearts, that you turn us away from sin, humble us, help us to see how none of us deserve to draw near, but you have invited us to draw near through your Son. And we come to you only through His grace, through His righteousness. So Father, work in us, we pray. Draw us near. Help us to turn to you and to find true rest and peace in Jesus Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen.